Tonight we'll pick up in verse 14 as we continue. We're getting near the end of the second letter. Uh, And so we'll finish these two marvelous letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in our next study. But tonight, something that's not a familiar subject in Paul's writing, because he does this very infrequently, but it's important in our world, and he basically is going to shame the church at Corinth. Now, we live in a day and time where it seems as though Uh, To bring shame to anyone is always a negative thing, and while it can be abused, to be sure, and often is, it is also an essential for the child of God. For those of us that love the Lord, there should be things that we are ashamed of. It is actually a good thing for us to think on actions, attitudes that we've had, maybe things that we've done uh, that are not in concert with our new nature in Christ, and they should bring shame to us. That's God's warning system, reminding us that these things are inappropriate. And very often that shame actually comes as a work of the Holy Spirit. For remember that the gospel author John, as he wrote about the Spirit's work in our life, said that the Holy Spirit would come and it would instruct us in godliness and righteousness And also, how we ought not to live, it would instruct us in unrighteousness as well. We would know those things are right, and we would know those things which are wrong. And so the Apostle Paul is now going to address the church in Corinth, picking up here in verse 14, in a way that seems to us a little bit harsh. But I believe the Apostle Paul is being used of the Lord here in a way that sometimes we also have to speak with strength, and to address problems head on. One of the things that I can tell you in the church that we sometimes get ourselves into a bunch of trouble in, and that is being unwilling to speak the truth in love. Sometimes we speak in truth, but we don't tell the truth in love. And sometimes we speak in love and we don't tell the whole truth. In other words, we're not actually telling somebody the problem We'll say, oh, yeah, well, I talked to him about that. Well, our talking to him about that was the weather, and then, oh, by the way, you did something wrong, and you move right on. The Apostle Paul is going to address very directly some issues in the church in Corinth in the latter part of the remainder of chapter 12. And so verse 14, let's read this passage together. And now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. So the Apostle Paul is telling us he's been there not once, not twice. He's about to go for the third time. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. In other words, he's not looking for their stuff. He's not looking for their money. He's not looking for accolades. He isn't looking for something from them, but he's looking to minister to them. He's making it very clear his purpose, his intent for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. He says, look, I, it, it's, it's as Connie and I uh, have often talked about our own children. We have adult children. Uh, they have their own homes. They have their own cars. They have all those things. But at the same time, it, it is our position that the Bible clearly states that parents are to be a help to their children, not a burden to their children. And in fact, the Bible says that 
parents ought to lay up for their parents and those parents ought to lay up for their children's children. It's supposed to be something to where none of us should be a burden on one another. And the Apostle Paul is now expanding that to the church and he's saying, look, I didn't come to be a burden to you. As your spiritual parent, I birthed the work there in Corinth. The last thing I want to do is be a burden to you. I want to be a blessing to you. And I think sometimes in the church, we've almost gotten to the place to where we come to church expecting something from it instead of giving something to it. And I think there's a a secret here to, to really solid church growth. When we all come seeking to bless the body of Christ instead of receive something, the body of Christ becomes blessed. If we seek coming If we come seeking, in other words, that which we can get from the church, very often the church gets depleted. The people in the church get depleted. We should all be givers of ourselves so that those in the church ultimately are blessed by our presence, not burdened by our presence. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. And he begins to speak of that type of love that, you know, let's be honest, most of us don't like to give tough love. Amen? I don't. I would much rather just be kind and gentle and forget the tough part. I'd like to always be nice, you know, be giving good gifts. It's like the difference between a, a birthday party and a going to the hospital party. Birthday parties are kind of fun. Going to the hospital parties, not so much. But be that as it may, Paul now is going to return to the gift of irony a little bit. I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. In other words, he's saying, look, I was kind of messing with you a little bit. I did take advantage of you by any of those, or did I take advantage of you by any of those I sent to you? He's speaking of Titus. I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? In other words, Titus came and he wasn't a burden to the church either. Did we not walk in the same steps? Titus preached the gospel. He sought to see the church in Corinth grow. And again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God and Christ. But we do all things, beloved, for your edification. He says, you know, there's something that those of us that have been in ministry for a while, it becomes so incredibly evident because there's something I can tell you about ministry. I don't care who you are and I don't care what church you pastor, whether it's this one or some other, whether it's me or someone else, you cannot please every single person in the church. It is an impossibility. I got an email today about something I said a year ago online when I boldly pronounced, I actually like ukulele music. Now, I kind of thought that was benign. But nonetheless, I got an email today from somebody who didn't sign their email, by the way. They just sent an email saying, you know, ukulele is from the devil. I didn't know that we had an awful lot of ukulele praise here at Calvary Chapel South Bay, but I guess somehow I missed out on the memo. And and, and my point is this. If we were to have 
only a pipe organ up here, most of you probably aren't coming back for worship. <laughs> if, if we were to take away the electric guitar, some of you go, oh, they're kind of folksy. If we were to use too much of it, oh, they're in the metal. You know, it's just like we all have our subjective things that we like and we don't like and colors and everything else. There is no way to please everyone. It is not possible. But we should all be attempting to build up the body of Christ. It's not about subjectively what you like or don't like, or I like or don't like. We're attempting to accomplish the will of the Lord. And so sometimes you're going to be really, really, really pleased, and sometimes you're going to be not so pleased, and everything in between. Our our goal is not to come together and see if we can please ourselves or have our wishes fulfilled. Our goal is to come to the, the common purpose of seeing the Lord's will accomplished in our life and in this church. And so that's in view here. He says, look, what we've done, we've done for your edification. Everything we do, one day, and this is Paul's take on this, he realizes everything he's done, everything he said, he's done before a God in heaven who misses nothing. And so sometimes when I talk to people, I said, you know, I will say something to the effect, you know, at the end of the day, I'm actually not going to answer to you when I get to heaven. If we can't come to some kind of agreement, you're not going to be standing next to Jesus and, and you know, it's just like, well, let him have it, Jesus. You know, for all of us, it, it, I'm going to answer to God. And so I'm very comfortable answering to God because if he needs to spank me, I'm sure he's going to do it. And if I don't need it, he's not going to let me have it. So I am comfortable. The Apostle Paul understood this. He's like, you know, I, everything I do, I know I do it in front of a God who misses nothing. And so as he begins this defense of why he's going to write to them, he's saying, look, if there was another way around this, I know that what I'm about to say, God's listening that is a frightening thing. It's something that I concern myself with. It's like, Lord, I want to say everything you want me to say, and I want to say nothing you don't want me to say. Because I know one day I'm going to give an account for every idle word. Every last thing. I'm going to stand before the king of heaven someday, and he's going to go, why did you say that? Why did you cause people to believe that about me? And so he says, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification, meaning that he has God's purposes in mind for building up the church. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish. So after all this effort and time, these two previous trips, the first letter that was written, and now I'm nearing the end of the second one, he says, I have a tremendous fear. That after all of this effort, all of this talking, and I would draw it attention this way, and I, I'm looking at some of the pastors that are in the room. You know, there are times when, when we spend an awful lot of time meeting with people and talking them through problems and sharing the word with them and going through scriptures about all manner of things. And you've said everything you can say. You've done everything you can do. You've given counsel until there's no more counsel to give. And then comes that moment when you simply have to commit that person to the Lord. 
It's just like there's nothing else to say. There are no more scriptures for us to look up together. There isn't anything additional to add. The fact of the matter is everything that needed to be said has been said. And Paul has reached that place here as he finishes the second letter to the church at Corinth. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you as I wish. In other words, he prays that these things that he's been addressing in both of his letters are taken care of. And that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. He says, look, this is a two-way street. It's not an easy thing to deal with these things. I'm not actually looking forward to coming and talking to people that I've had to talk to this way. This is not my wish. This isn't what I want. One of the great difficulties of giving godly counsel is you have to tell people things they don't want to hear. Amen? If if you've got children, say amen. Yeah. You kind of need to tell your kids some things they don't want to hear from time to time. Amen? The same is true throughout the body of Christ. There are times when the truth is the truth, and as you're speaking that truth in love, it's still something people don't want to hear. I very often enter into these things in areas of life and marriage and dating and those types of things where you're looking at somebody, it's like, man, this is just not God's will. And I can tell it's not God's will by the way you're doing it. This is flesh, this is spirit, you're doing it in flesh, this is not God's will, and you may call it love, but it's not love. You're going to destroy your relationship with that person. Now, you don't want to say that. That's not what you want to say. But it is nonetheless the truth. When you're talking to someone who's, who's struggling with same-sex attraction, it's not like I want to sit down and say, brother, sister, this is what the Bible clearly says. This is not God's plan for your life. And no matter what you've listened to in the media... No matter what you think some pseudoscientific study has concluded, the fact of the matter is if you profess to know Jesus, you're walking in complete disagreement with God's plan for your life if you continue in this plan. That is not easy to say, but it is the loving thing to say. It has to be said. If I truly love that person, I cannot let them leave my office thinking that God approves of something that he has clearly said he doesn't approve of. Now, how I say it makes all the difference in the world. And when it's said with love and compassion and yet still truth, God can use that. But if I take the truth out of it, God's not going to be able to use that. And if I beat somebody with it, it will likely not have the desired result for the Lord. So there has to be that balance of speaking things truthfully as God has spoken them and doing that with as much love as you possibly can. And we see the Apostle Paul doing this very thing here. He says, look, I I don't want to find a mess. Lest there be contentions jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Can you imagine having to say that to somebody? You don't pull those kind of things out of the air. This is what Paul had been dealing with with the church in Corinth. 
this should not be true in any church. It shouldn't be true in this church. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you. And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lewdness which they have practiced. Paul is pouring on the shame. He's saying, this, this is not what I want. He's allowing that, that role of the Holy Spirit, the convictor of sin and of righteousness, to work in, in the church in Corinth. As far as the Bible's concerned, the Bible is very clear. And in fact, it makes it very clear that shame is a good thing, not a bad thing, when that shame comes from the right heart and the right attitude. And in fact, the Bible clearly teaches there in Jeremiah chapter 6 that when you no longer feel shame, you no longer have guilt, when your conscience is so seared that you can sin with impunity, when you can continue to do the things that God has told you not to do, it is a sign you have a problem. It's not a good thing. Jeremiah said they were ashamed Were they ashamed? Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Neither did they blush. The people had gotten so hard in Jeremiah's time in the city of Jerusalem that they they no longer even blushed over their sin. I I believe that's a condition that Paul is is addressing here. And so there's some reasons, some things that Paul is, is pointing to here and the first thing that I see is that Paul is shaming the Corinthians for their lack of commendation of who he is this is the guy that planted the church this is the man who led many of them to personal faith in Jesus Christ and and they're they're basically saying well we don't want to hear from you you know just just leave us alone and I can probably speak for all the pastors here on staff, one of the tragedies that sometimes we're forced to deal with is maybe we've been used of the Lord to lead somebody to Christ, maybe baptize them, uh, maybe we've dedicated their children to the Lord, performed their wedding ceremony, you know, been used in someone's life, and, and, and they become engaged in a, some sin issue that has them in bondage, and before you know it, the pastor who loves the Lord Jesus is public enemy number one. We become the most hated person on the planet because we remind them of the fact that they were once walking with the Lord. And it's not fun. All of a sudden, this person that you have personally invested in is like turned on you and, and, and it's, like, it's like, was I not in the hospital when your children were born? Did I, did, did I miss some memo here somewhere? That's what Paul's going through. He said, look, I invested in you. Uh, and you can't even say anything nice about me. It's just like this whole thing because I'm confronting the sin that's in your life. Now all of a sudden, I'm the bad guy. And so he kind of messes with them in irony. He says, I was never a burden to you. I didn't take anything from you. And the unfortunate truth is that church was in rabid sin. 
And I've seen this play out actually both directions. I've seen pastors take advantage of people in the church, and I've seen the church take advantage of pastors. That shouldn't be true either direction. When someone has taken the time to invest in your life, whether that's a Sunday school teacher or somebody that you're ministering to yourself, it, it just doesn't matter what the context is. Remember to honor the people that have been used in your life to help you grow in Christ. Now, it might just be somebody that you're friends with. It could be your prayer partner. It could be a parent. You know, some of us actually have godly parents who've been on their knees their entire lives for us. Some of us are those godly parents who've been on our knees for our kids. I pray that one day our children would look at that and remember that. The second attitude that Paul addresses here is their lack of appreciation for him. It's like, I, I think I spent myself for you guys. Paul didn't do it for that reason, but the fact of the matter is, he did. He said, I would willingly count my life as lost for you. He had a sincere love for them to spend and be expended in order to help the church was his, his method. The only devious thing, if you wanted to look at it that way, is that he refused to take money from them. He wanted to just make sure that his conscience was always clear. And finally, Paul looks at him and he says, look, I just got to tell you this. Look, you've got a lack of holiness in your life. And, and the church's response was, well, well, then just don't come visit us. <laughs> don't, don't come then. You know, it's the weirdest thing in the world. I have been disinvited to quite a few things. People find out that you're a pastor, you know, you've known them for a while, and all of a sudden it's like, you're a what? Oh, well, uh, we changed the date and you can't come. You know, because they know that ultimately you represent the Lord. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, look, just because I live my life for the Lord doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, shouldn't still be my friend I've invested in you out of all these things that you're doing, the stuff that's going on in your life. You know, I'm not the one creating the problems. The problems exist inside of you. And so Paul really takes a, a beating here in that way internally. It's like, can you imagine hearing these things? Now, we think about it in our modern context, and I want to kind of help you understand this. You know, for us... For us to go visit somebody, and it doesn't even matter where it is, we wanted to visit somebody on the East Coast, we can be there, we go to the airport, five hours we land in, you know, Baltimore, and we get off the plane, we can go visit our family, we can be back tomorrow if we wanted. But the Apostle Paul is journeying at a bare minimum for two weeks to go from somewhere near Jerusalem, probably Caesarea Maritima on the coast, boarding a ship there, sailing across the Aegean Sea, landing, and then taking at least a week and a half land journey to, to go minister to these people. And so it, it, is, it is really, really, really hard to understand how someone could 
think in their mind, well, you know, he doesn't care about us. Just getting to them once would have been a sure sign that he cared about them. He's not only visited them once, he's already visited them twice. He's about to do it a third time. He will have likely spent at least several months traveling just to be able to go take a beating from them. To be dismissed as irrelevant. And brings up the question. Sin in God's church is a serious issue. And I think one of the things that we learned from the church in Corinth is how serious sin in the church actually is to God. Because Paul spends a ton of time talking about this very issue. And while I don't want to belabor it, we've studied both these letters and we've spoken to those issues very clearly. We have to remember that in the church, we have to deal honestly and faithfully with sin issues. We have to deal with them courageously and decisively. We have to look at things the way God sees them. They are deadly to the life of the church. And so when we find them, we have to deal with them. If we actually love the people that we're serving the Lord with, they must be dealt with. You can't sweep it under the rug. It actually makes it worse. It, it in that sense, prolongs the inevitable because God is going to deal with it. Why? Because he chastens those whom he loves. Amen? He, he doesn't just go, well, you know, for you, okay, it's fine. You can just do whatever you want. No, if he loves you, he's going to chasten you. So if you've got an issue, one of the most beautiful things that you can do as a part of the body of Christ is actually be used to the Lord to correct somebody because you actually may be saving them and those that are around them. You might be shortening the distance between uh, them, them being not okay and them being okay. But if you just say, ah, I'll leave it to somebody else. Very often you allow the church to become sick. And Paul lists several things here, and we're going to look at those things uh, as we finish up this passage tonight. But you see, sin, just like cancer in the human body, it can start really small. Now, I don't know how many of you, now your best friend is your dermatologist. Because I grew up in that time when we used to lather ourselves with baby oil with iodine in it and cocoa butter and you'd go grill yourself on the beach right nobody told us what that was going to do to our skin cells because I don't think anybody knew there was FPS negative 75 when I was growing up you know it's just like it wasn't SPF anything you didn't protect yourself from the sun you just boiled yourself in oil and so now you, you, you look around and you go like, honey, does that look strange to you? And Connie says, your whole body looks strange to me. <laughs> it's like, you have those everywhere. You know, it's, like, it's like, is that one red? You know, see, you, you sit there and you think, maybe that one mole, it's going rogue. Now, the reason I'm, I'm setting this up this way is I have a guy that I know that is right now fighting cancer, and I don't think he's going to live. And it all started with a tiny little mole. I buried a man in Running Springs who was a landscaper most of his life. Same thing, had a mole on the back of his ear. And two years later, he was dead. That cancer spread through his entire body. It affected 
every organ and eventually killed him. Sin in the church is like that. Initially, it might just be a weird-looking mole. It could be something that's very small. It could be an extremely small portion of the body. Do you understand what I'm saying now? We are the body of Christ. But a little tiny mole of malignant cancer called gossip or slander or innuendo a little tiny spot somewhere in the church can spread until it infects the entire body and kills it. We have to be careful, family, because when we see those things, we ought to do exactly what a dermatologist is going to do. When they look at something, they do a little biopsy, and they go, you know what, that's close enough to melanoma, we're taking that puppy out. I don't like the way that looks. We should have that same sensitivity to sin in the church. When we see things that don't quite look right, rather than messing with them, we should take decisive action. It's like, let, let's, let's get rid of that while it's still just some ugly, weird-looking spiritual mole, so to speak. Something that you look at it going, you know, I, I just that doesn't look right, it doesn't sound right, it doesn't feel right. We need to nuke it, we need to kill it, and you gotta do that if you want the body to live. If you want the body to die, then just sweep it under the rug. And so Paul basically says, Look, what's happened? What's going on with you? They were guilty of two classifications of sin, basically. Sins of the spirit and sins of the body. They were quarreling and debating. They envied one another. They promoted all kinds of carnal intrigue. And let me say something to you, and please don't be offended by it. I pray that you take it the way it's intended. Sometimes we sin by the way we pray. It is not okay to expose your friends and your family to ridicule and scorn by, well, pray for Joey, you know, because he's got a problem with porn. (laughs) God knows what the sin problem is. You can talk to the Lord that way, but when you're talking to other people, you're actually shedding a very ill light on that person's life by sharing those pieces of information. Save their character. God knows exactly what it is. People that you're praying with do not need to know that stuff. Be kind. You wouldn't want your stuff flung out there for everybody to see. Don't do it to someone else. They were dealing with sudden explosions of anger and backbiting and whispering. They were really sins of the spirit, but they were also sins of the flesh. Fornication, lasciviousness, debauchery. And Corinthians should have been ashamed. And I want you to look at something. You can do it later. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13 and what it says about real love, and you look at these lists that Paul has in Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 5, here in Corinthians, both in chapter 6 and here. 
the list that Peter has, and you start comparing it to 1 Corinthians 13, you're going to see something. They are all a lack of love. Every last one of these things shows a lack of agapeo for your friends, for your family, for your church. We should be ashamed of that. Paul's going to really admit here, he says, look, I'm actually afraid to come see you. For two reasons. He says, I might not like what I discover, and they might not like what I have to do. Puts Paul in a tough place, but if he's going to love them, he's got to go. And if they love him, they have to hear. And there's a secret to conflict resolution here. We have to both be bold enough to say what needs to be said, and we also have to be good enough listeners to hear things that sometimes we don't want to hear. Paul was going to come. He wasn't going to put off the trip simply because it wasn't going to be pleasant. Every once in a while, you're going to be in those situations where you're going to have to go someplace where you know it's not going to be fun. And I want to challenge you a little bit. Go. Go be used of the Lord. Go say what needs to be said. Do it with as much love as you possibly can, but don't back away because that's what the enemy wants. The enemy wants you to just simply be silent. The enemy wants you to just, well, I'll just, you know, this is, I, I, I don't want to say that. No, the Lord wants you to say it. That's why you know about it. To be bold. Paul gives us a list here. And again, I don't want to belabor this. I know these passages are always difficult. What a list. And I want you to think about something for a second. This list of shame. This isn't a bar. He's not writing to a strip club. It's not a pot dispensary. It isn't some casino and run by a bunch of thugs. He's writing this to a church. Look at the list. And ask yourself. Are you guilty of any of these things? Because if you are, guess what? God wants you to stop. And guess what? His grace is sufficient. Amen? First thing that Paul brings up really is the, is the English word debate. The Greek word he uses is eris, but it, it simply means strife or contention. It can mean arguments and discord. It can even mean division in this actual context. And here's why this is important. The church at Corinth was a smart church. There was a lot of intellectually savvy people that went to the church at Corinth. They were brilliant. One of the things that we deal with in our day and time is we have instant access to information. Amen? I'm actually fairly in tune to what's going on in the sanctuary most of the time and every once in a while I'll say something and I can spot you know 10, 15, 20 people fact checking me as I speak it doesn't say that (laughs) 
checking out to see if it's the right word or whatever. We live in a day and time like that. And we can become so contentious because we're hearing something we don't want to hear that we don't listen to the message that's being delivered. I've had people argue with me over Greek words and Hebrew words and grammar. I've had them come to me and say, well, that's not how you pronounce that. I've gone round and round with people about the vocal inflection, whether it should have been this way or that way, and I will usually ask them, well, what did you get out of the message? They can't tell me. They're so set on being contentious that they actually didn't listen to the message. They're so tuned in on whether the lights are blue or red or green that they don't worship the Lord. That is contentiousness. That's not from God. I'll be the first one to tell you, if you're looking for perfect, it ain't me. It's not. It's not going to be anybody else that stands up here either. Because we're all sinners desperately in need of a savior amen and so they become so discordant so quarrelsome that they argued about everything nothing good happens in a quarrelsome church you just end up with committees for everything well i'm on the left side of the sanctuary committee We sit over here because, you know, it's it's divisive. Half of the church services will end in some kind of acrimonious argument and nothing happens. Pretty soon we're writing, you know, it's like, oh, I can't believe we pass out candy at Harvest Fest. Yes, I got that email today. (laughs) Well, we could pass out avocados, I guess, but... Most kids really don't appreciate that too much. They will make guacamole by throwing them against the wall, though. No, it's like you, you, you just simply can't make everybody happy. It's not possible. But what we can do is, is choose what we do with the information that we have. Are we going to use it for the glory of the Lord, or are we going to use it as something to battle with? Something to try and wound with, something to hurt with, something to be contentious and strife-inducing with. The second thing is envying. Skolos, it, it, it actually means jealousy. It means like you see somebody else with something, and because they have something, and you want something else, or they have something that you want, you, you develop a negative attitude towards them. It it became obvious to Paul that they were bitterly jealous of each other. It's like somebody would be in some form of leadership and somebody else wasn't. And so the the result was was this bitter jealousy. A third thing was wrath. It's the Greek word thomos. And it's an interesting word because it's a compound word and it actually means heated or warm feelings or anger and when you think of thermal which is a a word that comes out of thumos 
And then you think of like a geyser. What happens? If you've been to Yellowstone, you know what happens. You sit around for an hour and a half waiting for Old Faithful to build up a bunch of pressure, right? And then what happens? Then it shoots 200 feet in the air. That's exactly what this is. Wrath is internal things that come to a boil that ultimately blow up and become something that is nothing more than a bunch of hot air. That's what Paul's saying. He says, you you guys sit around, you stew about this stuff, you let it take root in your soul, you sit there and churn it all up, you, you wait for it to boil over, and then it blows up, and after it blows up, you actually don't even have any idea what it was that you were actually angry about in the first place. It was just a bunch of hot air. We have to be careful because we can get caught up in that type of wrath. It's just hot-headed foolishness is all it is. It's indignation. You sit there and watch people scream and yell at each other. A couple weeks ago, we had a... I don't even know what they were yelling about. There's a couple in the parking lot over next to where the thrift store used to be. And I mean, they are yelling so loud. We have eight inch thick concrete walls on the front of the building. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'd tell her that too. And they're a hundred feet away. (laughs) Finally, I I went downstairs and looked down. I go, "You, you guys okay? Yeah, we're just talking about lunch. Like, well, maybe you could tone it down a little. It kind of sounds like wrath to me. Not the toppings on the pizza. He goes on, lists a few more things. Strife, strifes. Marathia, it, it, it means partisanship or fractures, fractions, divisions. It's carnal intrigue mixed. It's like storytelling with, a, with an intent. It's like, I got this juicy piece of information about that person. That's what Paul was dealing with. It, it's a sectarian spirit. It, it's kind of that clickishness that sometimes happens that we have to guard ourselves for. And, and, and again, I just want us to be aware of these things because these things are not love. They're not part of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace, which we're going to see on Sunday, by the way. So if you want the other side of this message, come on Sunday. <laughs> Plug for Sunday morning. It's like you're trying to gather a following. So you have this little tidbit of juicy details and you begin to share that story. Backbiting. Catalalia is, is this, it's, it's an interesting word because it's not just evil speaking, it's slander and defamation. I mean, it, it, you're intending to wound that person's character. It's not you're just talking behind their back, you're trying to kill them while they're not there. You know, you can destroy somebody's reputation very, 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 very quickly with a handful of words. You don't believe that. All you got to do is watch the news cycle. Watch what happens when a P 
piece of information gets out or someone's falsely accused or worse yet, imprisoned for something they didn't do. It might take 20, 30 years before that person is actually released from jail and they were completely innocent, all because of the testimony of someone who had an ill intent. Whispering. Sitharismos is a... It's like secret slander. It, it, it actually is attached to magic in the Old Testament. It's like enchantment. It's like, did you hear about Letitia? What she's doing with Danny? No, what did she do? It's like you'd never say it to their face and you'd never say it out loud. Part of the time because it's not actually true. It's what you'd like it to be. It's what you think it might be. So you whisper it. It was used in Hebrew society to talk about people who cast spells. Put charms on people. You see, Paul's telling us, like, man, you guys need to grow up. Swellings, I love this. Pomposity, conceit. Modern vernacular, babbling bloviation. You know, it's just just, talking for the sake of talking. It's swelling of words. It's, you know, we we would probably liken it to what we hear sometimes during our political cycles when people are, you know, they're on this stump and it's just like, They're saying a lot of things, but none of it makes any sense. Political swelling. So I promise you this, I promise you that. The church was doing these things. Tumults. It's the actual word that's normally translated war. Catastasia. It's like, man, you guys, it sounds like you're at war. It sounds like there's a last day's commotion going on in the church. That's why when James talked about this, James actually said in James chapter 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires or pleasure that war in your members? You covet, you lust, you murder. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. It's an internal problem. And he switches tone and he wraps this up. You see, these are the kind of the things that you might look at as sins of the spirit. Things that you say, not necessarily things that you're doing. But they're things that are attached directly to your heart. Just as Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You understand what I'm saying? So these things, while they may have little to do with actual fact or truth, they do kind of show where your heart's at. So when you're tumultuous, you know, when you're constantly stirred up with hot anger, when, when you're Life is filled with gossip and bitterness and slander and hate. These things that Paul's been talking about, you got to look inside. That's where the problem is. The problem's not outside, it's inside. 
It's not just the stuff that's around you, it's the stuff that's in you. You see, the church shouldn't have that kind of struggle. And finally, he warns them once again, this church was just racked with sexual sin. He says, look, you guys, you're impure, you're unclean. In essence, he says, you're, a, you're pornographic in that sense. We would use that word actually today. Pornea, it's, it, it, it would mean something that would stimulate your sexual appetite in a wrong way. It's outside of marriage. And what he was saying is, look, you've allowed the church to become contaminated with that type of thinking. It's like, we, we can't allow that to happen. He says, you're immoral. And he didn't have to add in all the things that we add into, add into it today. It wasn't heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual or transsexual. It was just plain knock off the sexual stuff. It's like it's all not okay with God. And then just in case he didn't get it, he says, and on top of that, you're just plain immodest. Translating your Bible very often, lasciviousness, and what it really means is you're you're so used to those things and so used to the sexualization of culture that you yourself no longer concern yourself with things that might bother other people. that's, That's not how church should be. It's not a lifestyle that the church should have. You should be able to tell the difference between Sodom and Gomorrah and the temple, amen? That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, it it isn't about one type of sin or another type of sin. It's like sin shouldn't be found in the church. And so Paul ends this chapter really with a simple reminder to us, something I think we can lay hold of. No church should ever be defined by this type of thing, these types of things. He, he shouldn't have had to write this letter at all. He's already written the first letter, and when you go back to 1 Corinthians and you read it, it's like, man, how did he not get that? Because this is the same church. And so I think for us, we have to let shame do its job. You know, when you see things that you're ashamed of, God's got you in that place for a reason. He's probably telling you, you know what, you need to go say you're sorry. You need to apologize to that person. You need to get that right. You need to set the record straight. Now, having said all this, praise God for grace. Amen? And, and so I don't want to leave anyone in a place of being condemned. But I do want the Lord to allow shame to to work its work in us. In me. You know, so one of the things I've learned as I've gotten older, you know, pastors aren't immune to saying things they shouldn't say, and they need to be able to go quickly and apologize as well. We need to take those things that we're ashamed of and go, you know what, there's a reason I feel like that. God's trying to speak into my life. I should go get that squared away. I should go say what I need to say. I need to go apologize to that person. I pray personally we never hear these words. Uh, And I I really don't believe the Apostle Paul needs to write this letter to the church that we call Calvary Chapel South Bay. But I know that us individually, as believers, we can get caught up in stuff. 
And so this passage for us is a little bit of a warning. It's also a little bit of a diagnostic tool for us. You know, warning things are good. Most of you have seen the check engine light, amen? You know, you start your car and that little thing that looks like an engine, it's yellow, comes on and it's like your car is about to die. It's especially bad when you're on the freeway, right? You're driving and all of a sudden it just comes on all of a sudden. Well, what you probably don't know is that check engine light can mean all kinds of stuff. It could mean you have a brake light out. It could mean that you have, you know, low fluid in your battery. It could be that you've got a O2 sensor on your catalytic converter that needs to be replaced. It could actually have nothing to do with you being broken down, but it is a sign that you might one day be broken down if you don't take it in and let them put it on a diagnostic machine and find out what's actually wrong. The check engine light is not actually diagnosing a thing. It's telling you you need to diagnose something. Do you understand? Why is that important? Because the Holy Spirit is our check engine light. The Holy Spirit's going, you know, there's something going on. That shame that you're feeling is your check engine light. It's like, oh, man, that's not okay with the Lord. And then you run back through the things that were said, and you go, ooh, that one. And then the Lord goes, here's what you need to do to fix it. You need to go back to your wife. You need to go back to your husband. You need to go back to your boss at work. Go back to that person in the church. And you need to tell them that you're very sorry and you're not going to do that anymore. And you need to mean it. You see the check engine light came on. That shame came on so that you can actually do something about the problem before it becomes something catastrophic. You see that might be that you're low on engine oil and you drive it another 15, 20 miles, and your old engine's going to blow up. So let shame do what it's supposed to do. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not that shame where you're making fun of somebody because they're clothing. It's God's Holy Spirit working in our lives saying, you know, that's just not okay for a child of God. Why don't we fix that? And then join him as he does it. Amen? Why don't you stand? We'll pray together. I'm going to have some of the pastors come, come up, be available. Maybe you got something. Lord touched, touched a spot in your life tonight. Saying, you know what? I've been dealing with some jealousy or some envy or strife. Maybe you've been gossiping about somebody. And you just need to get it, get it squared away. Just stop. There's the awesome thing. That's all God's after. He doesn't need to extract a pound of flesh out of you, but he does want you to quit. And so let him do that work. The light's on, do something about it. Father, thank you. God, I thank you for your graciousness in my life. Or those times when that light's popped on and and I realized, God, that I said something I shouldn't have said or did something I shouldn't have done. Lord, I had an attitude that shouldn't be in me as a child of God. I undertook some action that's not indicative of my new life in Christ. Lord, I thank you for those moments when you've corrected me. You put me on that diagnostic machine. You've allowed the word to work in my life. And I pray for us tonight. 
There's somebody here that's struggling. Maybe they just, they gossip, Lord. Maybe they're carrying unforgiveness or hurt that's resulted in bitterness and that bitterness is eaten away at their relationships with others. Or they pierced someone in the church because they thought that that revenge would do something to help them and Lord, it's just hurt. Pray that you'd set them free tonight. That you'd work in their lives and just remind them of who you are, Lord, that you speak the truth, but you always speak that truth in love. And so, God, we give you our lives afresh and anew. Thanks for these tough passages of Scripture that sometimes tear us apart to build us up. Lord, sometimes you need to tear some things down so that we can be better. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Pray that you would bless us, Lord, tonight as we commit again afresh and anew our way to you. In Jesus' name, amen.